Okay, good evening everybody. Welcome. Very special thank you to Torah Anytime as always for sharing this class with those of you who are not able to be here this evening. And a special thank you to the entire Abraham family for sponsoring this evening. Uh, this is in honor of Mr. Abraham's sister, who was Nifteris recently. Her name is Devorah Sarah Basmatis Yahu. Through our learning and through all of the schosim of the family, her neshama should have an aliyah. A special thank you and a welcome to Justin and his mother, all the way from New Jersey. Nice to have you with us. What's that? Yeah, fans far and wide. Fans far and wide. Okay, Baruch Hashem. And thank you for your contribution for this evening as well. <clears throat> Topic this evening is Holy Rebel. <clears throat> One of the, uh, the most mysterious parts of the Parsha, we have the, the quote-unquote stealing of the bracha where Yaakov dresses up as Esav and he goes to his father and he receives the blessing that will forever change the course of, uh, of history and the entire destiny of the Jewish people. Now right prior to Yitzchak giving the bracha to Yaakov, Yitzchak says, my son, please come here. I want to kiss you. V'yigash v'yishak lo, so he approaches him and he kissed him. V'yarach esreach begadov, and he, his father Yitzchak, he smelled the begadim, the clothing that Yitzchak was wearing. V'yvarchehu, and he blessed him. V'yomer, and he said, Re'ei reach b'ni k'reach soda, asher berchu Hashem. I could see that the, uh, the aroma from my child is just like the aroma of a field that Hashem has blessed. So it sounds like based on this interaction of having Yaakov approach, kissing and, and sharing that physical connection, and then smelling the reyach hasada, the aroma of the field, and at that point it sounds like there is a deeper sense of conviction. There is a, a feeling that this is the right thing to do. And he gave his son the bracha. Is the mic okay? Is it staticky? Is it kind of on and off? It's all right? Okay. So the question is, what was so significant about smelling the begadim, right? smelling the clothing of Yaakov that seemed to give that conviction, that sense of confidence to Yitzchak? Rashi comes along and he says, Vayarach is reyach begadav. It's a strange thing, right? What, what kind of clothing was he wearing? Wool. It came from a sheep. If you've ever smelled wet wool, there's not much in the world that smells worse than that. So what in the world Yaakov was doing? Oh, Yaakov comes and then Yitzchak says, Mmm, gishmak. The smell of wet, sweaty wool. We had the daven in the middle school the other day, and you walk into the boys' middle school classroom, you could tell you're in a boys' middle school classroom. So what exactly was it that Yitzchak was smelling? So Rashi answers, The Torah is teaching us here that when Yaakov walked into the room of his father, he brought with him the reyach of Gan Eden, the smell of Gan Eden. And then... 
Yitzchak says, Kereach Sadeh Hashem, this smells like the field that Hashem has blessed, explains Rashi, Shenosen Boreach Tov, Vizehu Tapuchim, this is a reference to the field of apples, the apple orchard. Kach Darshu Hazal, this we find in the interpretation of Hazal. So according to Rashi, there's something very deep, very mystical happening here. Yitzchak, we see throughout the narrative, was somewhat ambivalent, and he was a little bit confused, right? The Adayim Yedayesav, but the Kol Kol Yaakov, who is this exactly? But as soon as he takes that whiff, ah, Kareyach Hasada Shebercho Hashem, the scent of Gana Eden has permeated the room, that gave him the confidence to go on and give the bracha. That's what Rashi says. Now we know we have the custom on Rosh Hashanah to dip the apple in the honey. So where does that come from? Right, the Ramah writes in Shulchan Arach and Sibn Tavkov Pei Gimel, he says, Yesh no'gim lechel tapuach mosuk bidvash, we take a sweet apple and we dip it into the honey, and we say a special bracha, a special hiratzel, and this year should be sweet. Shanatovu Musuka. Explains the Vilna Gon, where does this custom come from? Why dafka an apple? So he says, we take this sweet fruit, just like it's referred to in the Pasik, Kureyach Sada, like the aroma of the apple orchard. And we know through Kabbalah, we know through tradition, it was the smell of an apple orchard. And that took place when? On Rosh Hashanah. The bracha that Yitzchak gave to Yaakov was on Rosh Hashanah. He was smelling the, uh, the scent of the apple orchard. And that explains the Vilna Go, and that's why we dip the apple in honey on Rosh Hashanah. Tosvos, interestingly, he disagrees. Tosvos in the Gemara and Tainus, he says that tapuchim in this context is not translated as apples, but rather kareach esrogim. It was the scent of esrogim. Where does that come from? So the Marsha explains that the begadim, the clothing that, that uh, Yaakov was wearing, we know that he took from Esav. Where did Esav get that begad from? So he stole it from, from Nimrod. Where did Nimrod get that begad from? All the way going back to Adam Harisham. So this particular jacket, whatever it was, had the scent of Ganadin. What was the forbidden fruit according to Tosvos? It was an esrog. And that's why through smelling the esrog, Yitzchak was tapping into the, uh, the, the avira, the energy of Ganadin, and he knew for sure this is meant to be. So this is all according to Rashi. Was it an apple? Was it an esrog? Either way, there was some indication of the past to verify his decision right here in the present. But I want to focus on a different interpretation here that we find quoted in the Medrash Rabbah. The Medrash says that when Yitzchak was smelling the begodim of Yaakov, something else crossed his mind completely. It wasn't Gan Eden, it wasn't anything in the past, but it was actually a vision of the future. It was a premonition of something that would happen. He was able to see the Zera Yaakov, the descendants of Yaakov. He was able to have a glimpse into the authenticity, into the, the commitment of Klai Yisrael in the future. 
and through seeing what the future generations would hold, that gave him the confidence he needed to give the bracha to Yaakov. Explains the Chazal, this is in the Medish Rabbah, source number 7. Begadov, or begadov, literally clothing, is also very similar to the word begida. Begida means to rebel. So when he was smelling the clothing of Yaakov, it wasn't just the aroma from the field, it wasn't the wet wool, it wasn't even the scent of Gan Eden, but it was actually, he was looking into the future and looking at the bogdim, looking at the rebellions, re- rebellion of Klal Yisrael. Those people who would forsake Torah, those people who had no connection to Judaism. For example, the Medrash says, like Yakum Ish Tsuraros. Who was Yakum Ish Tsuraros? We're not going to get into his story. And also Yosef Meshisa, these are two people throughout history who were very far removed from Torah. Somehow Yitzchak saw them through a prophecy and that gave him the confidence to give the bracha to Yaakov. What did he see? So I'll share with you the brief story here of Yosef Meshisa. The Chazal teaches us that it was during the destruction of the Second Temple, the Romans are about to conquer Yerushalayim and destroy the base of Migdash. And they turn to Yosef Meshisa and they say, before we go inside and ransack the Temple and take out all of the Kalim, all of the precious vessels, you go inside first. You take something, whatever you grab is going to belong to you. And then after you go in, then, okay, then we'll go in also. So he agrees. He agrees because he was trying to get in their good side. He was a traitor. He was betraying his brothers and sisters of Klal Yisrael. He wanted the Romans to like him. He had no interest in classic, authentic Judaism. So he agrees. He goes inside the base of Migdash, and what does he grab? He grabs the golden menorah. He walks out with the golden menorah, and the Romans look at this beautiful kli, this beautiful vessel, and they tell him, I'm sorry, you should realize, Ein darko shel This is really not meant for the average person. This should belong to the Roman Empire. So we're going to take this, but go in and grab something else, and that you can keep for yourself. At that moment, something happened. Something changed his life forever. And he said, I'm not going to go back inside. And they were shocked. They knew he was trying to get on their good side. We're asking you to do something for us. Go back inside the base of Middash and grab something else. And you can keep that item, whatever it is. And his response is, Is it not sufficient that I already angered my God one time? I should do it a second time? I'm not going in. And at that point, it became a power struggle. The Romans said to him, We'll pay you. We'll pay you a lot of money. We need this to happen. And he said, absolutely not. And they killed him because he refused to go inside. That's the image that Yitzchak saw looking into the future. Someone like Yosef Mishisa. That gave Yitzchak the confidence the understanding that, yes, I want to give this bracha to Yaakov because these will be his descendants. We're going to have Jews like this in the future and therefore, I feel good about bestowing the blessing upon my son Yaakov. 
This is a very, very strange Chazal. If, if he was going to see anything, if Yitzchak was going to be privy to future generations, I would have assumed seeing someone like Rebbe Akiva, seeing somebody like the Pinei Yoshua, seeing somebody like Ramosha Feinstein, seeing the greatest Torah giants all throughout history, seeing someone with the brilliance and the compassion of the Vilna Gon, that should have given Yitzchak the understanding that yes, I want to give the bracha to Yaakov, these will be his descendants. Yosef Meshisa? These, these random people who were totally void of any ruchnias, they had no connection to spirituality? What was so special about looking at the Bogdim, looking at the people who were rebelling? Why was that the most powerful thing that Yitzchak could have possibly seen? I'll share with you a story I heard from Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson at a Shuvu event. The Shuvu is a wonderful organization that really specializes in getting children into yeshiva. Right? There are so many hundreds of thousands of Jewish children out there who don't have any real exposure to the Torah, Torah learning, Torah living. And Shuvu is one of the amazing organizations that has been doing a tremendous amount for Klal Yisrael over the decades. There is a particular event that took place in the Tanya, a Shuvu gathering. And there is a lady, she was a lawyer, secular Israeli. And she stood up and she said, I just wanted to share my story and why I support Shuvu. She said, my father grew up in the Soviet Union and he was born and raised, brainwashed against religion. He hated religious Jews. He himself was Jewish. But he couldn't stand Orthodox Jews and Judaism in general. He was actually appointed by the communist government to be the leader of a Jewish group where their main goal was to totally destroy and get rid of any vestige of Judaism anywhere in the Soviet Union. So he was known, he was revered, and he was feared by Jews all across that area. 1941, when Germany invades Russia, everything changes quickly. The Nazis come in and Mach Shemam, and they order all of the Jews in that town, that particular village where they were living, to be gathered into the street and sit down on the ground, and then we'll give you orders. Now at this time, they had no clue what to expect. They had no idea of the horrors that were awaiting them and their brothers and sisters. So they were all sitting there, and it was getting near dark. So one of the religious Jews walks up to a SS officer and says, excuse me, it's uh, almost sunset. Do you mind if we daven mincha? Can we pray the afternoon prayer? Not knowing the level of evil and, and, and barbarism of these people. So the Nazi starts barking at him and yelling at him, sit down, dirty Jew, alone. Sit down, you're not going to daven. So clearly the Jews there were intimidated. They sat back down. A few moments later, the soldiers step out for a little bit. And this lady's father, who never davened mincha in his life, he didn't know how to daven mincha. He never opened a sitter in his life. He gets up and he says, 
gentlemen, it's almost sunset. We should daven mincha. And the rest of the group there were a little bit intimidated. They said, don't be afraid. This is what Jews do. Jews daven mincha. Come, let's go. So they start davening, but Sibor, they start davening as a group. And in the middle of Shmon Esrei, the Nazi soldiers come back and they see this, and you could imagine they were very disturbed. They start yelling, what are you guys doing? Who's responsible for this? Who arranged this? We said clearly there's no prayer right now. And without flinching, without hesitation, this lady's father stands up and said, proudly, I was the one that arranged the minion. And they shot him and they killed him right there in the spot. So at this particular event in the Tanya, secular Jewish lawyer saying, my whole life I've been troubled by my father's paradoxical ending. How he was so opposed to religion, he was so anti-Judaism and religious Jews. And then for some reason, something clicked at the end of his life where he was willing to risk everything to daven mincha. And I always wondered, how would that have any impact in the future? What's, what's the, the rhyme and reason of this whole thing? But she says, now my son, the grandson of my father, he's been part of Shuvu, and he davens mincha every day. And I can't help but picture my father taking his grandson by his hand, and leading him and helping him daven mincha. But that's the koach of the neshama, that's the power of the Jewish soul. We could be so far gone. We could be trying to show the Romans that we're really on your side, don't kill me, we want to be part of you, we want to assimilate, we hate Jews, we don't respect the temple. But then something could change on, on a dime, and my whole, my whole worldview can shift. I could have this hisorus, I could have this awakening of tshuva. It's all within that power of the neshama. I could spend years and years gathering people together to try my best to get all of the Judaism out of Russia. We don't believe in this silly religion. It's the opium of the masses. But when push comes to shove, I'll stand up and I'll daven mincha, even if that means risking my life. I had the opportunity about eight months ago I was part of a seminar with Rabbi Shaya Cohen in Passion de Muna. And he told two very powerful stories that I think really bring home this point. The story with Rabbi Arya Levin, Rabbi Arya Levin, known as the Tzaddik of Yerushalayim, he became very friendly with Rabbi Chaim Berlin. Rabbi Chaim Berlin, who was born and raised in Moscow and eventually moved uh, to Yerushalayim. Chaim Berlin, every Arab Shabbos, as many have the custom, he would sit down and he would read Shira Shirim. This custom goes back hundreds of years. And whenever he would read Shira Shirim, and he would get to the Pasik in the fourth parak, how beautiful, how fair are you, my beloved. You are so beautiful, your eyes are the eyes of a dove. He would cry. Every Friday afternoon, right before Kabbalah Shabbos, he's reading Shira Shirim, that Pasuk of Enayich Yonim, he would start crying. So Ba'ari Levin witnessed 
a couple weeks in a row, and he was curious. So he asked Chaim Berlin, what is it about this particular Pasuk? There are many moving psukim throughout Shira Shirin, and the metaphor is so incredibly deep. Right? Chazal tell us that Rabbi Akiva used to say Shira Shirim, and he'd be crying the entire time. But what is special about this Pasuk? So Chaim Berlin told Ari Levin, he said, when I was back in Moscow, I got a knock on my door, three in the morning. And there's a fellow there, a non-religious Jew, but he was asking me, can you please come over to our house and give my son a bris milah? Now, if you were caught giving a bris milah, uh, you could be sent to Siberia for 25 years. So, Reb Chaim, not wanting to turn him down, he was a mole as well, so they went in the cover of the night, they came to the home, they did the bris in the morning, and Baruch Hashem, it all worked out. They weren't caught by the authorities. Belinda was so curious. He turns to the man, the non-religious father, and says, Can you explain to me? You're obviously not religious. You're not keeping Shabbos. You're not keeping kosher. But yet you're willing to risk your life to give your son a bris. Why put yourself in danger? What's pulling you? Where's it coming from? The man said back, it's very simple. Rabbi, I'll tell you the truth. Likely, I will never become religious. This is who I am. This is who I will be. If I was a betting man, my son will not become religious either. He's born in our family. We don't practice. But you know what? It could be one day. It could be one day when he's 30, when he's 40, when he's 50. He might be inspired. He might want to get back into things and go back into the fold. And I don't want there to be any blockage. I want him to be accepted and viewed as a Jew 100%. Because he always might turn around. You never know. So explain to Chaim Berlin, to Ari Levin, what's special about the Yonah, the dove, the eyes of the dove? So Chazal teach us that the dove is the only bird that may fly far away from its nest, but it always looks back to make sure that its young is protected. It's always looking back home. It's never flying away so far that it loses sight of where it's coming from. So Chaim, whenever I say this Pasuk, I think of that father back in Moscow. That's the power of the neshama. That's within, that's bedrock within the Jewish soul that no matter how far away we are, we always know we might come back. We're never closing that door completely. Even if I'm rebelling, even if I'm doing everything I possibly can to show you in the world, I don't care about God, I don't care about Torah. But deep down, we're always looking back, always keeping that connection with the nest. Rabbi Cohen told a different story as well, I recall, of a young man who was born and raised religious, Things didn't work out well for him, and he went way off the derech, and he was exploring many other things. He had tattoos. Tattoos are usually an indication that not only is this just a, a fad in my life, but I'm letting everybody know this is part of who I am. I am no longer identifying as a religious Jew. So he had tattoos all over his body, all over his right arm, but for some strange reason he had no tattoos on his left arm. When one of his rebellion asked him the question, why is your left arm totally uh, clean? The young man said back, listen, right now, I don't put on tefillin. Don't plan on putting on tefillin. 
But maybe one day I will, and if I ever put on tefillin again, I don't want to have the tattoo in the way between me and my tefillin. Right? That's the Jewish neshama. No matter how far we go, we always have that potential to look back. That's what Yitzchak Avinu was sensing. It wasn't just Pnei Yeshua and Rabbi Kiva and all the great Torah scholars and all the great Torah mothers throughout history. That's a wonderful thing also. But when he had that mavur, when he had prophecy, that even the lowest of the low, so to speak, the people who totally abandon HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and they neglect the Torah, but they still have that power within the neshama, they're always looking back at the nest, that gave him the confidence to give the bracha to Yaakov Avinu. I want to share with you a brief story of Elisha ben Avuya. I'm just curious, by a show of hands, who have heard, who here has heard of the name of Elisha ben Avuya, one of the great Tanayim, the authors of the Mishnah? And the strange thing is, most Tanayim, after they reach that level of accomplishment in Torah scholarship, they didn't go off the derech, they didn't become heretics. That wasn't a common thing to do once you're on that level of, of scholarship and, and spirituality. Alusha ben Avuya was one of the strange exceptions we have throughout history. A little background, there is a, a Medish Rabbah and also Yerushalmi that give us a little bit of his story. Remeyer, who was also one of the great authors of the Mishnah, one of the great disciples of Rabbi Akiva, he viewed Alisha ben Avuya as his Rebbe, as one of his main teachers. Even after Elisha ben Avuya went off the derech and he was no longer keeping Torah and mitzvahs, Remeir would still learn from Elisha. This was surprising. This is what Remeir did. So the Medrash tells us that one day Remeir was teaching his students in Tiveria, and Elisha was riding on a horse through the marketplace on Shabbos. Riding on a horse is a violation of Shabbos. So they tell Remeir that Elisha is here. It sounds like he leaves the shear he was teaching, but he gets up, he goes outside, and he approaches Elisha, and Elisha says to Remeir, What are you learning? Right? I'm, I'm, I'm no longer religious, but I'm curious. What are you learning? So he says, we're actually working on one particular Pasuk in Job, and I'm uh, extrapolating upon it. I ma mart bay. So she says, well, what are you saying? No, dog. What are you saying on that pasuk? So he tells him his interpretation. And Alicia says back, Nay, nah, it's not pshat. That's not really what's happening there. That's not what your Rebbe, Rebbe Akiva said. Let me tell you what Rebbe Akiva said on that pasuk. And he goes on to explain his own interpretation. Again, he says, okay, no, what else are you teaching the boys? So Remeir quotes another pasuk from Kohelis. That the end of something is better than its beginning. Right? A very cryptic verse we find in, in Kohelis. So Elisha says, okay, what are you saying on that? Right? How are you expanding upon that? And he tells him his interpretation. Again, Elisha says, nah, that's not what your Rebbe said. Rebbe Akiva said something else. What did Rebbe Akiva say? So Elisha told him that Rebbe Akiva taught us that tov achris dover kishahu tov That something is good in the end when it starts out good in the beginning. 
That's what Shlomo HaMelech was teaching us in that particular verse in Kohelis. And then after explaining his interpretation of this Pasuk, Alicia then shared something in an autobiographic way with Remeir. He said, you should know, case in point, when I was born, so my father, my father Avuya, who was one of the Gedole Hador, he was one of the greatest Torah scholars of the generation. He invited everyone to come to the Bris Mila, everyone should participate in the Simcha. And we had uh, people come all across the neighborhood, and we had two very special guests. Who was there? Rebbe Eliezer and Rebbe Yoshua. So they're sitting around, everyone's eating locks and bagels, having a good time. And then Alicia explains to Remeyer, they started eating, people were eating and drinking and schmoozing and singing, and at that point, Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yeshua said to themselves, you know what, everyone's uh, doing their thing, let's do our thing. What's our thing? Let's learn. So they were sitting there together, he's chilu b'Torah, they started discussing topics in Torah. And they went to the prophets and then to the writings. And they were going in Torah Shabbat and extrapolating and back and forth and arguing to the point. They were reaching a level of simcha, of joy and devekis through their learning. It was as if they were presently receiving the Torah from Harsinai. There was a fire around them. Not literally a fire, but I assume it means there is this spiritual aura surrounding the Yelezer of Yeshua as they were sitting there at the bris of little Elisha learning Torah. At that point, Avuya, Elisha's father, he saw this and he said as follows If this is the power of Torah, look what it could do, look at the joy it could bring. Look at how it could totally enable one to transcend everything physical. If that's the power of Torah, Aben Hazed, this son of mine, if he's able to live and grow up, knows no the Torah, I'm going to give him to Torah. I'm going to devote his life to Torah. Sounds like a pretty beautiful thing, pretty noble desire. But explain the Lisha to Remeir, it wasn't sincere. His desire to get me into that mode, to take me in that direction, was shalom l'shem shemayim. It was for a, for a motivation for a different agenda, namely, look at how much you can get. There was something selfish about it, and that's why, that's why things didn't work out well for me. So in a sense, he was blaming his father. Blaming his father for the way he started off his education because it wasn't coming from a pure source just wanting his son to connect with Torah and Hashem. But there was a motive, there was an agenda. That's what Elisha told Remeir. They continue walking together and you can picture the scene. Elisha ben Avuya is on his horse and Remeir is walking beside him. And then suddenly Elisha says, Stop Chazorbach. You have to return. And Remeir is surprised. Why do we have to return? So Elisha says, because this is the end of the Tchum. Right? The halacha is on Shabbos, not allowed to walk 2,000 amos outside of your little neighborhood. 
So Mary says back to Elisha, how in the world do you know that we just walked 2,000 ambos? And Elisha said back, because I've been counting the steps of my horse during our conversation. That's a brilliant mind. That's a Yiddish cup. I don't care myself about going outside the Tchum, but I've been keeping track of the Tchum, and I want to let you know, don't pass that line. Sarah Meir was floored by this, again seeing the brilliance of his Rebbe, and he said to Elisha ben Avuya, if you have so much you have so much wisdom, you have so much potential, then Chazor Bach, why don't you return also? He wasn't talking about returning within the Tchum, but he was saying on a broader level, return to Torah, return to Makarish Baruch Hu, return to who you really are. Why don't you do tshuva? So Elisha ben Avuya said back to Remeir, I'll tell you why. Because I've lost hope. I was riding my horse on Shabbos that happened to fall on Yom Kippur. That's a double whammy, right? Riding a horse on Shabbos and Yom Kippur. And I happened to hear some kind of baskol, some kind of heavenly voice, saying the following message. The baskol was calling out, Shuvu banim shovim. Return, my children, those of you who have abandoned the way of Torah, return. Shuvu alai shuvu aleichem. Come back to me, says Hashem, and I will bring you. Chutz me Elisha ben Avuya, except for Elisha ben Avuya. Sorry, buddy, you have no chance. Why? Shayodeya kochi umaradbi. Because you, you know me, says God. You understand the, the, the majesty and the awesomeness and the reality of who I am and what the Torah represents, and you're rebelling against me. I'm sorry, you don't have the opportunity that everyone else does have. So Alicia says, I would love to do tshuva, but after hearing that call, after hearing that voice, I realized I have no, I have no option. This is who I am. goes on to say that towards the end of Elisha ben Avuya's life, he was sick and Remeir was called in. And every time they speak to Remeir about Elisha, it was always, your Rebbe, your Rebbe Elisha is sick, he's on his deathbed. So Remeir goes to him and he figures he'll try one more time. And again he says to his Rebbe, at this point, just a few moments left in your life, Chazar Bach, do tshuva, return to Hashem, this is your last minute. So then Elisha says back, I think it's too late. But he asks it as a question. Isn't it too late by now after everything that I've done? After the tremendous chilul Hashem that I've created? Can you imagine the disgrace to the Torah and Hashem when you have someone who is so respected, who was one of the teachers of Klal Yisrael, and he chooses to go off the derech? Can you imagine what kind of doubt that infuses in the masses? So he says to his Talmud, Remeir, how can I do tshuva? And Remeir says back, we have a principle. And although you think you heard that everyone could do tshuva, chutz except for you, you happen to be mistaken. Because we have a cloud gadol, we have a guiding principle that tells us, Adachducha shel nefesh, even to the last point of your life, even to the point where a person is barely hanging, hanging on, your last breath. But also sure, at that moment, if you choose to do tshuva, your tshuva will still be accepted. 
Upon hearing those words from his student, Bacha Elisha ben Avuya, he started to cry. Elisha was crying with a sense of regret, but he was probably also overwhelmed with a sense of joy that he still had this opportunity to do tshuva, v'meis, and he died right there. And as soon as he died, the Medrash says, Remeir Sameach, Remeir had a sense of joy, and he said, I think my Rebbe died in Mitoch Tshuva as he was returning to Hashem. Once they buried him, there was a heavenly light that came out upon the grave. Remeir placed his talis on the grave of his great Rebbe, Elisha ben Avoya. And the story is tragic on one hand. On the other hand, it has somewhat of a happy ending. It looks like he barely made it. He was able to do tshuva at the last second. Why was Reb Meir even allowed to learn Torah from Elisha ben Avuya? Sounds like a pretty strange thing. <clears throat> if we were to know even a very, very wise, very prestigious rabbi, who might be a wellspring of Torah, but he's no longer religious. So it would be very strange for us to continue learning from him. How do you trust anything he has to say? And this happens to be a very interesting halachic discussion as well. When chas v'shalom, there is a leader of a community or a teacher in some capacity, and they're doing things that are not, uh, not really in line with Torah ideals, with Torah hashkafa. What does that mean? Do we discount everything? Much broader subject. But the Gemara is actually bothered by the question, Remeir, how did you learn from Elisha ben Avuya? Generally, Chazal teach us that when you're looking for a Rebbe, you have to find a Rebbe that's Dome Lemalach, that's almost like an angel. So no human's like an angel, but it means I'm looking for someone not just who's smart, not just who's charismatic, not just who could quote things off the top of his head and, and impress everybody, not just a people person, but someone who's authentic, someone who's real, someone who's actually living it, not just preaching it. You have to be learning from someone who's like a malach in that sense. So how is Remeir allowed to be learning from Elisha ben Avuya? That was the Gemara's question in the Talmud Bavli Chagiga. So one answer is, it depends. It depends on your status, it depends on your age, and it depends on your level of maturity in Torah. Meaning to say, if you're a cotton, if you're younger, or even if you're older, but you're not a godel qualitatively, you don't have that, that capacity to, to be able to make those fine distinctions and put aside an aspect of one's personality but still derive wisdom from what what they're saying, then you could only learn from someone who's like a malach. You don't have the ability to discern, and therefore you need a rabbi who's mamish angelic. However, it could be someone who's a godol, someone who has a tremendous foundation in their own learning, and their own hashkafa, and they're able to, uh, to take the good and leave the bad, so then maybe they are allowed to learn from someone like an Elisha ben Amuya. The Gemara goes on to say, though, that with Remeir, he had the ability He found a date 
and he would eat the good part and he threw the bad part in the garbage. Basically, how did Ramayar learn from Elisha Benavuya if Elisha Benavuya was a heretic? The answer the Gemara says is that he was able to, to make distinctions. That's good, this is true, this is a deep Torah idea that I know is coming from a pure source that I'm going to take and I'm going to make part of my own Torah knowledge. This over here is heresy though. I'm not going to accept this particular philosophy because I feel that's coming outside of the realm of Torah. Don't try that at home. That's something only that Rameyer could do. But that's the Gemara's answer. So we analyze the entire story. What was it that got Elisha Benavuya to do tshuva? What was his motivation? He thought, and whether or not it was really a prophecy, or it was somehow misconstrued based on a lack of self-esteem, based on feelings of guilt, but he thought initially he had no chance of returning. So what happened? What changed? How did a mayor eventually convince him? I think it's clear from the Medrash Rabbah and from the Gemara Chagiga, it was because Rameyer had a relationship with Elisha ben Avuya, and he still looked at him as his Rebbe. Of course he didn't agree with many things that he was doing, and he would debate viciously many philosophical uh, points that Elisha might hold true, that Rameyer would say is heretical, but he still respected him as a person and he was still able to see the good within Elisha Benavuya. I think it's clear from these sources it's because Rameyer believed in him. And at the end of his life, Elisha was willing to ask the question to his own student, do you think that I could do tshuva? And Rameyer says, yes, I think you can. It wasn't just that one word of chizik, you could do it. It was a lifetime of the relationship that even though you're off the derech, I respect you and I love you. I don't have to agree with all your decisions. And for any one of us to learn from someone like an Elisha Benavuya would be totally inappropriate because we don't have that capacity to only take the kernel and leave the chaff. But psychologically speaking, what gave Elisha Benavuya the ability, the courage to change at the very end of his life is because someone saw more than meets the eye. Someone believed in him. It's not surprising that the Mishnah in Perki Avos, we have one Mishnah in Perki Avos, authored by Elisha Benavuya, although elsewhere, all throughout the Gemara, he's referred to as, as Acher, as someone else. He's given that name because he was a heretic. He's still quoted, but he's called Acher. In the Mishnah Perkiyavos, shortly after Elisha Benavuya's own teaching, we have a teaching that is sort of, according to some texts, was written by Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, but according to others, the Rabbi Yonah, it was actually authored by Rabbi Meir. What is the teaching of Rabbi Meir in Perkiyavos? Source number 11. Rabbi Meir Omer, al tistakel bikankan ele b'mashi don't look at the jug, but look what's inside. 
That's the source of the famous phrase, don't judge a book by its cover. Is it surprising, is it coincidental that Remeyer, who was able to see past the heresy of Elisha ben Avuya and still embrace him and respect him as a human being and giving him the chizik to eventually do tshuva, is it surprising that he was the author of the Mishnah al-Tistakel Bekankan? have to look past some of these things, never to accept it, never to pretend I agree. We can disagree vehemently, but I love you and I respect you. That keeps someone close. This goes back to the 1970s. There was a fellow, at the time he went by Larry, Larry Levin. And uh, he was really a child of the 60s. He was uh, a hippie into the Grateful Dead, long hair, he dressed the part. A Jewish boy that had a little bit of a yeshiva background but was very influenced by the American culture and really that whole energy of the time. He lived by himself in an apartment, he really had very little money and he went from job to job. People didn't respect him, people didn't really give him the time of day, he looked like a flake and oftentimes he was a flake. He's looking through the classified section of the newspaper and he sees janitor wanted at the local yeshiva to be in charge of cleaning the study hall and facilities. Pays well. Pays well? So he figured, why not? Listen, I haven't been a janitor before, but I've been doing a lot of other random things, haven't been keeping a job. Let me do something. So he calls up, he makes an appointment, that he assumes he'll be meeting with the manager of the facility. And uh, he's waiting around, he finally gets into the office and he realizes he's sitting across the desk from none other than Rabbi Shlomo Freifeld. Rabbi Shlomo Freifeld, he was not aware who he was at the time, but he was the great mashkiach in Chaim Berlin, and then he opened the yeshiva Shar Yashuv. Yeshiva Shar Yashuv, many of us are familiar with, uh, you know, has done amazing things throughout the years for Bali Tshuva and for many others. So Rabbi Freifeld was interviewing this young man and he was asking him, what, what are you looking for? What brought you here? So he explained, I'll tell you the truth, I'm just trying to make a few bucks. I'm probably going to get kicked out of my apartment soon. And I saw the ad, it said it pays well. I'm curious to know how much it pays. So Rabbi Freifeld started asking him some more questions. Do you have a yeshiva background at all? He said, yeah, like, you know, many years ago I was in yeshiva, I did the whole, the whole thing. Can you read Hebrew? Yeah, I could daven like the best of them. I could daven, I used to learn a little bit. Interesting. Well, the truth is, I think this might be Bashir. We have uh, three young men here in the yeshiva that are looking for a Rebbe. I'm trying to find someone to teach them Eilu Metziyas, the beginning of Bab Metziyah. Have you ever learned Bab Metziyah before? So the young man's thinking to himself, this guy must be joking. Says, I remember something about two guys holding a talis. I don't, I don't know much more than that. He's, oh, it's perfect. So maybe you could be a Rebbe in the yeshiva. So Larry answers back, I don't know what you're talking about. I cannot be a Rebbe. I don't, I don't do anything. I don't keep Shabbos. I don't keep kosher. I, I, don't, I don't learn. I forgot how to learn. I can't teach other people. Look at me. I have shabby clothes. I have long hair. Shlomo Freifeld said, guess what? These three boys have longer hair than you do. 
and you can probably relate to them better than I can. How much does it pay? <laughs> I said, Shlomo, he said, trust me, it'll pay more than the janitor job. We're starting Wednesday, okay? Wednesday, I am going to prepare, so prepare. Here's a Gemara, take a look at it. And if you want help, I'm right here, I can give you a hand. Wednesday was just in a couple of days. This young man comes to the yeshiva and he sits down with these three boys and they start learning together. And he was petrified. And he felt, who am I? I'm such a faker. Here I am coming to the yeshiva. I don't do any of these things myself. I'm teaching Gemara. But he did. And he got into it. And the first couple of days, he came in teaching Gemara without a yarmulke, without tzitzis. And then he went to Shlomo Freifeld and said, I, I feel strange, I'm teaching Gemara, I'm not even wearing a yarmulke. It's a good point. I can get you a yarmulke. <laughs> it's going to make you feel more comfortable. There's no pressure. Over here, there's no pressure. That was very much for Freifeld's style. But if you want a yarmulke to feel more comfortable when you're teaching Gemara, I'll get you a yarmulke, I'll get you tzitzis. He continued teaching in the yeshiva. Fast forward 35 years later, He's no longer Larry, his name is Levi, Rabbi Levi Levine, with nine children of his own, living in Yerushalayim, a very popular Rebbe in a yeshiva over there for American students. What changed this boy's life forever? What was it? It was someone like Shlomo Freifeld who was able to see, here we have a Yiddish Neshama. Here we have a soul that is so disconnected from everything right now. So how can I build it up? How can I, how can I remove those layers of schmutz? The only way to do it is show you that I respect you. See, oftentimes we can give love. If it's a family member, if it's a friend, they're having a difficult time spiritually. I can give love, I can give compassion, I can even give pity. But nobody wants your pity. What do we need? What do we crave? We need respect. I don't respect myself right now, especially if I've been through the turmoil of making that decision for whatever reason to leave the fold. So I'm living with a lot of strange mixed feelings and guilt and, and all sorts of things and a lot of baggage and a lot of trauma. What's going to help me through that? You could validate me and you could respect me. You don't have to agree to what I'm doing, but if you love me and respect me, and you show me that you believe in me, then I can start believing in myself. Rameir believed in Elisha Benavuya, that brought him to do tshuva. Refreifeld believed in Larry, and that created Doros, generations of Torah, of uh, B'nai Torah. I want to end with a letter from Rav Kook. Rav Cook is responding to a question of a friend who was basically bemoaning the fact that his children were very uh, non-interested in Torah and Judaism. It sounds like they were involved with the uh, secular Zionist movement, and he was writing to Rav Cook, what should my approach be? So the letter here is number 12. Let's read a few lines together, just the underlined parts. Rav Kook writes back, It brings me joy to see your letter as we're friends and the love is being expressed. 
but it also causes me great pain and distress to hear about the plight of your children. You should know my friend. I understand the pain of your heart. I understand your anguish. But if you think mistakenly, like many people do, at least at that time, that those children, or those adults, who are veering away from the path of Torah Amuna, if you think the approach is to let them go, okay, they're, they're not one of us, but Baruch Hashem, we have enough, we have, we have yeshivas, and we have schools, and we have thriving uh, Torah institutions. If that's your philosophy, let me tell you. I want to tell you without mincing any words. This is not what God wants. God doesn't want us to let any children, or for that matter, any adult, to just go off and do their own thing and not feel an overwhelming sense of responsibility to love them and respect them and bring them back. You should also realize that based on the time, and this is going back, he passed away in 1935. This letter was written in 1908. So a lot has changed since 1908. And now the great struggles that we have with our children are not that they want to be part of a secular Zionist organization. Right? We have other difficulties. But he says, you should know based on the energy, based on the avira, they are anusim gemurim. So much of what they are doing is totally against their will. We should not judge them as if they're doing this maliciously. They're not leaving the derech, so to speak. They were never exposed to the real derech. You should realize there is hope and there will be a better time. That internal neshama, the sanctity of Yisrael, it's hidden within the depths of their heart. And there's so many positive qualities we could look at and we can, we can admire. They think they're doing wonderful things for the Jewish people. They think they're fighting on behalf of Jewish continuity. They mean well often. But it's the Zerim Hazman, it's the, 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 uh, the storm of the time that's sweeping these young men and women away. However, you should know if you keep the love and you keep the respect, then Yiyu Muchanim Lechuvo Latava, they will be ready to return in the right time. It might require maturity. It might require a change of life setting. But as long as you keep that Kesher, as long as you show them that you believe in them, they will be Muchan, they'll be ready for Tshuva. He says, my advice to you is, as much as you possibly can, help them out. Help them with their parnasa. Make sure they're eating. Make sure they have enough money. And then you could schmooze with them, you could talk with them, you could share words of inspiration, but only after they see that you care about them 
It's not just that I have an agenda to convert you. I care about you, and then I can share words from the heart. We have a promise. Words that come out from the heart, they will enter into the heart. Whether it's a little bit, whether it's a lot, but even a little bit. And this is such a crucial line for anyone trying to inspire anybody else. Even a little inspiration, a little change, that's yakar ma'od, that's extremely precious. Anything you say that comes from the heart, they see you're sincere, they see you care about them, you love them, but it's not pity. It's I respect you, and I can look at your positive qualities without writing you off. He concludes by saying that the ikr shall derech musr letzirim ke'ela, the main focus with young men and women should be, Try to inspire them not to lose the love and the pride of being Jewish. This is where they come from. Don't ever give them the opening, says Rav Cook, to feel I'm going to get more validation. I'm going to get more acceptance in the outside secular world. If we ever give them the feeling that we're shunning them because you're not worthy enough for me, you're not good enough for the institution, you're not meeting the standards and the requirements of what we feel is acceptable, then what you're basically telling them is, go find that elsewhere. But you're not going to find it in the world of Torah. Sort of Kokos advice to this father, love them and respect them. Yitzchak Avinu was about to give the bracha to his son Yaakov. What was it that he sensed? Maybe it was the Gan Eden, knowing that this was a continuity from the very beginning of time. The purpose of life, the purpose of humanity will be fulfilled through you, through Zerah Yaakov, the descendants of Yaakov. But it was much more than that. It was Yitzchak being able to look into the future and see, we're going to have tzaddikim. We're going to have righteous people and selfless people, but we're also going to have people that fail miserably. But those rebels could be holy rebels because the neshama is a neshama boeris. It's a neshama that's on fire. All we have to do is bring it out. How do we bring it out? Just like Rameyer with his Rebbe Elisha ben Avuya. We respect you, we love you, and we'll do everything we can for you. And Amir Hashem, through our sense of responsibility, through our sense of achrayas for our brothers and sisters, we should be able to dig out the neshama within us and help others find theirs as well. Have a wonderful evening. Mm-hmm.